welcome to Just a GP. This week's episode, we're having a chat with Dr. Bethan Richards. Bethan is the first well-being officer appointed to the Sydney Local Health District with a job of looking after the well-being of the doctors in their jurisdiction. But I'm going to leave that conversation to Bethan. Otherwise, you've got me, Charlotte Hespie, we've got Beck and Ash as co conspirators and crime and we're really here waiting to hear a whole lot more about how we might be able to look after well-being in doctors and registrars that um, we're working with. So I'll start off with you Beck, if you don't mind what's been a highlight of your week this week? Sure so my highlight of my week and probably one of my favourite things to do each year is to go to the Vivid Festival in Sydney. Is the Lights Festival that runs from the last week in May through to the second week of June and they've got multiple big light installations throughout the city. So we went to the Taronga Zoo one on Sunday with the kids and it was wonderful. It was a really, really lovely night and we'll probably go to the other installations a few times over the next week as well. So if um, this podcast gets out before it closes and if anyone's in Sydney, I highly recommend that they go along. So you're going to be well and truly lighted out. Yeah, eh? So we'll enjoy. So Bethan, what do you want to tell us about something that might have been a highlight for you this week? Uh, yeah, thank you. My highlight was also on the vivid lines in Last night, actually, I had the um, privilege of going to key restaurant for my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and we had the most amazing view um, to go along with the food of the harbour all lit up with the, the vivid lights. So hi- highly recommend it for people of all ages. It was just fantastic. Perfect timing for a 50th wedding anniversary. <laughs> yeah, I told them I specially prepared it for them. Yeah, they might have. You never know. They could have believed you, but. Maybe not. (laughs) So, Ash, how about you? Uh, We've been going up to a friend of mine's every Monday night to watch the final season of Game of Thrones and it ended last week and then this week was my friend's birthday and we had these amazing fish tacos with freshly caught fish and it was the bomb. That sounds really, really good. So that was a good way to um to have your finale for your th- your thrones. What well, was the post finale? It was like the you season's think done. You think and there's we more st- coming again? No, as in we really enjoyed kind of just having that that weekly catch up that over a, a period of six weeks, and so we decided to finish it off with our our friend's birthday celebration where we didn't have an episode to watch. Yeah. You're just going to have to find something else to do then on the Monday instead of the um, the television series. Yeah, we could talk to each other or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, so for me, my highlight this week is oh, it's actually a bit boring in that it's clinical, but it's not boring, I suppose, either in that respect, in that I attended a whole day of education around transgender health. So I've been um, actively looking after um uh, patients who uh, identify as being transgender f- really my entire career as a GP and it's been a little bit lonely I think some of that time because not very many people have either known anything about it or been you know 
interested about what it might look like. So it was great to actually have a whole day of teaching and input and just sort of networking with other doctors and professionals who work in this space and yeah, looking at sort of some guidelines to assist GPs actually be the people who are the go-to experts for um, people who identify as being transgender. All right, so over to you, Bethan. We really are very excited to have you on as a guest. So despite the fact that you're not just a GP, we're really interested to hear about the work that you've been doing with some of our wonderful baby GPs um, because that's how we heard about what was going on in Sydney Local Health District. And so we'd sort of like to hear a little bit about the story of your wellbeing program, which I believe is called MDOK. Yes, thank you, um, Charlotte. I guess our story started about three years ago. And as these things go, I guess we'd noticed that after looking after our trainees, my background is as a director of physician training. So I used to look after about 58 trainees that rotated through our network. And we noticed that there was an increased level of, of stress and we started to notice the, the severity of the impact that it was having on our trainees, um, both from a psychological perspective, but also from a physical perspective as well. So we were, we were seeing sort of the physiological changes, the, the weight gain, the you know, excessive fatigue, the, the irritability, the increased anxiety. And so we started to put our heads together about what was, what was going on. And we did a few things early on in, in terms of putting some structures in place to support trainees with, with mentor programs. Um, and then during that period of time, we, we underwent, I guess, a, a crisis where we had three of our um, basic trainees in the state actually commit suicide. And that led to a, a really in-depth and large discussion and conversation, I think, that, that started on an organisational level and, and actually across the state as well to try and better understand what was happening in our health system and what this sort of new crisis that we seem to be facing was and, and why were the, the trainees sort of burning out and why were these terrible things you know, can, continuing to happen. So we started by putting together a team of people and we had a really amazing initiative here in Sydney Local Health District where if you had a good idea about something and you wanted to address a problem, you could pitch the idea to the chief executive and a senior executive and senior clinicians in the hospital for some pilot funding of up to $50,000. So we, we got our basic physician trainees, our junior doctors and our, our training team and our support staff and a series of psychiatrists together. And we put together a, a pilot program that we called BPTOK. And essentially it was a, as a program to, first of all, I guess, make our trainees feel supported uh, and that we were hearing the, their cries for help and I guess seeing the, the distress that they were undergoing. And, and we put the program together to, to be a multifaceted intervention to give them outlets, I guess, to improve options for physical exercise and, and activity at work um, despite hectic schedules and exam stress. And then we put sort of psychological support structures and training workshops in place to try and help improve that skill set whilst then laying a platform to start a big discussion with our organisation about what were the drivers of, of burnout and this distress and what we could do about it. So we called that BPTOK and we, we piloted that program over, over about 12 to 18 months and we had really great success with it in, in terms of engaging our, our trainees 
making them feel heard, reducing their levels of stress, burnout, improving sleep, um, improving nutritional levels. And actually, um, we had some hard outcomes in terms of improving patient care with less medical errors and some organisational outcomes with, with less sick leave. So that program, having gone really well, then led to our transition into what we wanted to deliver to all doctors, actually. So we've rebranded BPTOK as MDOK, aligned with the, the new MD that's awarded with the, the medical programs. And now we um, have a program that's offered to all doctors, no matter um, what level of training they're at. That sounds so cool, Bethan. We had you along at our faculty council meeting and it was really exciting to see how you have uh, helped to incorporate the concept of clinician well-being as a priority. I think it would be really useful for our listeners to understand uh, how you were able to do that in terms of incorporating it in as part of a normal part of the governance of the structure of the organisation that you work in. Yeah, so that was um, certainly one of our, our challenges early on. And what we learned from the process was the, I guess, the importance of engaging senior administration in this issue. And we were lucky we had um, amazing support right from the chief executive down through administration. And that, I think, looking back is one of the key things to the success of the program. The second thing we did was then to really listen. We spent a lot of time listening to the, the frontline juniors off about what were the things, what were the major drivers of their stress and the, what interventions did they think they wanted and, and sort of putting those into practice. And what we did off the back of that and the way we got that information is we actually started by holding a, a forum. So we had a junior doctor forum with our chief exec and a senior clinician. So, so I co-chaired and what we did is try to create a really safe environment where the junior doctors felt that they could actually speak up and tell us about what was going on and, and then actually ask them what they felt their solutions were. And what that did is it started a, a really useful conversation that we've then built into the governance structure. So out of that forum, it was decided that it was such a um, useful conversation that we should have it on a regular basis. So we started the Chief Executive Doctors in Training Committee. Uh, and that committee now meets every month and has representation from all the different specialties and stakeholders and levels in the organisation and discusses the ongoing um, issues that are coming up, knowing that, you know, this is a really massive problem that we're trying to target with sort of cultural changes and system changes and how to supporting our individuals in that process. So, so that weekly meeting has been really useful in continuing the conversation and ensuring that we keep our most senior level of, of administration who has, you know, the resources and, and power to affect change in the same room as our training directors and our, our juniors who, who have the solutions and are able to voice, um, you know, the drivers of their distress. It sounds like a great way to start a program and actually keep it moving on, not just have it as a one-year wonder. I guess what I'm specifically interested in is what it looks like for the junior doctors. So as a fairly, well, as a junior doctor myself, a new fellow, what would being part of MDOK look like for the hospital staff, for myself? So the, um, the beauty of MDOK is, is, and one of the principles behind it is that we've tried to give people a real menu of options, knowing that, you know, no one strategy is going to appeal to everyone. So MDOK 
we've divided up into different categories of options that help people to, to I guess, improve their self-care skills, but also give them opportunities for learning. So as a, as a junior doctor, you would have access to a, a series of workshops, for example, that are delivered during protected teaching time. So one of the main things we've tried to do in sending a message to all our staff that this is really important um, skills and knowledge that we're teaching is that we're teaching it in the same protected time slots that we're teaching other important skills, you know, like a lecture on how to manage an ischemic heart attack or how to do CPR training. So building that into protected time, if you're a junior doctor and it's Thursday afternoon, you might have an hour lecture, you know, on a how to manage stroke, and then you might do an hour of a progressive muscle relaxation workshop that takes you through that and gives you a taste of whether or not that's a strategy you might want to use going forward as one of your self-care strategies. So we've got 10 workshops now that people can opt into and we're designing different workshops, I guess, for different specialties, having asked the individual specialties what they like. That sort of complements the the mentor mentorship programs that we have in the organisation. And, and what we've done with that is if you're a junior doctor, it's the expectation that you will have a mentor and probably a couple of mentors and actually be a mentor for those below you. So we've tried to really build a culture of mentorship into the organisation and then actually ensure that it's somewhat skilled mentorship. So recognising that mentoring is actually a skill that it, you know takes practice to get good at over in time. We've now built, built in mentor training for anyone part of mentor workshops that they can attend. And as an organisation and, and sustainability issue, we now are running train the trainer mentor workshops so that we can have that capacity to ensure that we've got staff that can train other mentors in time looking forward. So, so junior doctors would have access to that. They also have access twice a year to be part of a mindfulness-based stress relaxation course. Um, and again, that's an opt-in program. So if that's something that appealed to trainees, um, we would fully fund that and run that. Um, that one's usually after hours at the moment, but they would have the opportunity to do that for free. We then have the physical program that complements that. So again, in addition to building tasters of these sessions like yoga or group exercise into the protected teaching time, we now, because we've opened this up to all medical staff, have options from six to eight in the morning and six to eight in the evening for staff to attend group exercise with each other on site. And so every night you have the option of attending one of those classes with your colleagues. And, you know, some of the benefits of that are actually around social connection and, and meeting other colleagues from the organisation and having that debrief that also goes along with either the exercise or, or the yoga. So people have um, access to that side of things. And then the other big new initiative that we've really sort of put more effort into developing this year has been around social connection opportunities. So we've realised with, you know, again, feedback and ideas that have come from our junior staff, there are opportunities in the musical world. So we've started the all-staff choir where you absolutely don't need to be able to sing but you can come along once a week uh, we open up our drinks fridge and you can relax have a drink be around colleagues from the hospital and um, sing sing a few songs for an hour and that's been incredibly popular at sort of breaking people out of their silos and bringing them together so they'd be sort of some of the the realm of um, what the the junior doctor has access to in terms of being part of the program and then they also have access to be part of 
designing the program going forward and having a voice in that systemic and cultural change by being on a variety of um, wellbeing committees in the hospital or working groups in the hospital that are trying to address some of the bigger issues. And on those bigger issues, I'm, a lot of the feedback can sometimes be, you know, resilience is seen as a bit of a, a dirty word or trying to kind of focus on the individual clinician. There's a, there can be a bit of a pushback in terms of, well, you know, it's not just me, it's the environment that I'm working in and, and needing to fix the environment. How, how is that going so far in, in terms of that process and change? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point and something we heard loud and clear when we initiated the, the program. And I think that really taught us to be very mindful about the messaging of how we were delivering the program and letting people know what we were actually trying to achieve with this. I think one of the key messages is, is sort of seeing this issue of, of burnout, which is prevalent you know, throughout all organisations in healthcare systems across the world, and, and seeing it as a, a shared responsibility you know, with the employer, but also with the employee. So standing up and, I guess, owning our role in, in being part of the solution going forward, because I don't think this is a solution that can happen without our doctor's input, and in particular our junior doctor's um, input going, going forward. In terms of, you know, the other key messaging, I think we've been adopted what's called the uh, a Stanford model approach. So basically the, the Stanford model says, look, absolutely agree that the, the majority of the things that are influencing um, burnout are relate, related to organisational cultural leadership and system issues. But actually, you know, as part of this equation, resilience and, and um, individual factors certainly also play a part. And so not ignoring that. And I think, you know, we know that the system and, and cultural change is going to take time to get better. And we have to be able to support our staff so that they're well enough going forward to help us drive that change. And I think the, the resilience world or the resilience training is a big part of helping our staff feel supported right now while we're trying to affect these things that are going to take time with, with system change and, and um, seeing and empowering our junior doctors to look after their you know, own well-being so that they can help us be part of that change going forward. So that key messaging has been really important and to stop that cry for don't fix us, fix the system. And there was a few examples that you gave us at our council meeting about ways that you've tried to start changing some of the the systemic issues and you spoke a little bit about um, protected lunch times and also allowing for for sick days and recording of overtime could you explain for our audience how you were able to do that and, and what that's kind of looking like and how you got to those conclusions about what needed to be changed and how how you were able to do it yeah, absolutely. So I think this the how really comes back to that platform that was initially put in place. So all of the um, initiatives that you've just mentioned came up through conversations that happened at the, the either the junior doctor forum with the chief executive or our monthly um, doctors in training chief exec committee meeting. And so what we did with that structure in place, it, it was have sort of an environment where I think trainees felt comfortable to speak up about what some of the issues were and certainly we started asking some questions about why do you know why do doctors come to work sick and why do you guys never take your radios and and that really started a, a conversation around 
well that you know it's seen as a weakness i guess not not to come to work or if, if they if they take a day off or there's really no one else to cover them and so if they don't come to work that workload is falling onto their colleagues and sometimes junior staff and there, there's a real guilt i guess in our culture associated with that and so we started talking about opportunities for how could we provide a flexible workforce that could be pulled off, I guess, certain duties and be able to cover ADOs and to cover sick relief, but still have terms that were really valuable in learning skill sets that perhaps weren't taught in medical school that we know once we complete training are really important. So we piloted some leadership terms. So the leadership terms give trainees the opportunity to work, for example, in our quality and safety unit and work on the, some health pathways. They might be working with our leadership and performance team to look at how we can use big data to improve frontline clinical care or perhaps to work with our medical education unit, for example, in improving education initiatives across the, the district. And what these people do is that one day a week, they cover their colleagues' ADOs, so they're getting clinical work along the way. And if their colleagues are sick, we allow up to three weeks of sick relief. So we can pull people off these non-clinical terms to cover and get some clinical work if needed. And so really trying to send that message to, to junior staff that we do not want you coming to work if you're sick and you know making everyone else sick around you. And that it's okay, we'll have cover for you so you won't be putting your workload onto someone else. So we've piloted those over the last 12 months. And I think it'd be fair to say they've been incredibly successful. And actually, we've had some amazing project work come out of that that's led to publications that's been presented at, at conferences. And an example of that would be our junior doctors working in the performance um, unit designed an application to look at lab test ordering and how frequent it was across the different terms by individual prescriber. And we have technology that can feed that straight back to the junior doctors. And so the junior doctor leading that project designed the reports, fed that back. And basically that led to a significant decrease in unnecessary laboratory ordering. So that was a really useful you know, quality and safety initiative, as well as trying to reduce you know, unwarranted clinical variation and unnecessary care and really gave that junior doctor a chance to work with the, the performance unit and see the other side of the organisation in health and how that works, which really unique skill set and knowledge that not many people get access to while also providing this cover for ADOs and sick relief. So that would be one, you know, one of the examples that required the chief exec to approve funding for the FTE to do that. And then we needed a senior clinician leaders and other members of the organisation to say they could supervise the terms. And then we went through the, the pilot process. So we're now looking to expand those because they've been so successful. Gosh, it's such, I mean, it really is a great program, Bethan. I mean, one of the things for me when I've been listening to what you've been talking about is how do we build on some of the concepts uh, looking in the GP space because obviously being able to roll something out in a hospital system is quite different from rolling it out in the private enterprise space of general practice. But having said that, I think that, you know, certainly for a lot of practices, there are ideas that we can do there in terms of, you know, like me as a practice owner, makes me think about making sure that the GPs and the registrars have got that protected time over lunchtime. I mean, some of them don't want it maybe because they're wanting to maximize their earnings but if we can try and actually show them that it's more important for them to be 
well and to be enjoying that time and that protected space is actually about us looking after them as well and then adding in some of those other sorts of ideas about the the night out, the having lunch or dinner together, the doing some exercise facility, you know, things together. I mean, we're certainly looking, the RACGP is being asked to champion parkrun. And that's, again, a great opportunity for a whole lot of GPs who are passionate about running to go out and share that, not just with their patients, but with the staff of their practice and say that, you know, if we have, we're as a practice, let's champion this our local park run and then everybody can sort of benefit because you've got a bit of that community socialising, etc. Because socialising, again, is very much part of, of the project that you've been doing, hasn't it? Yeah, look, it's certainly um, something that we've realised later on in, in the, the program about the, the, the power of social connection. And, you know, when you look back, it's, it's one of the most cost-effective things, I think, to be able to do and probably the other the, thing that people have been asking for the most and so yes I mean we we had a similar initiative in terms of the we started a, a young what we called the young boss club to start with uh, and that was really um, about trying to bring people together out of their silos who really didn't know each other and it was a lot of feedback from senior staff to say that they you know rue the days where there was the staff lounge and you used to run into your colleagues and be able to have those really vital actually debriefing chats or little chats or corridor consults that just made you feel connected to the rest of the organization and you know that hasn't really happened since the staff lounges have gone and I think you know workloads got busier and that prioritization that you you mentioned um, has, has, has put a pressure towards you know clinical volume rather than being able to necessarily deliver the, the care in, in the way we want it and take the time to for self-care so some of that's a change in in mindset and, and certainly we had similar feedback with our junior doctors initially about the the lunch and you know if I if I take my lunch then will that mean I'd be at work half an hour later and we've really you know had to get some perspective and get people to step back from that and and talk about you know nutrition and performance and half an hour out now you know is like taking a, a break at the gym for your brain a little bit and allows you to perform better I think in the afternoon and that means you know that means more efficient practice and that means less patient errors and I think those two things are sort of critical when we're thinking about should we prioritize this time for self-care rather than this monotony of just trying to see volumes and volumes of patients. Yeah it's really interesting you say that one of my colleagues was only actually mentioning today that you know she runs to time and she feels like she's in control in the morning and then in the afternoons things just get out from under her and she's not as good at containing boundaries and being efficient and I'm sure it's about that whole thing about actually just taking some time out at lunch time to sort of be able to get your brain in order feel like you're back in control and that the afternoon is a totally you know in control time again the same as it was in the morning but it is that discipline of making sure you practice it Absolutely. And if you could bring in social connection with that, I mean, just thinking for a practice environment, if you're ensuring that everyone's having their lunch, but having their lunch together, again, that that provides an opportunity for, for debriefing if, if that's you know something that would work in that environment. Yeah. And we've been doing, throwing around some other ideas too, because, you know, I think I love the, the idea of the social connectedness. We've set up a book share club. So there's a, um, a bookshelf now in the, in the doctor's area where 
if you've read a good book, then you throw it in there and share it around. My problem, of course, is that most of my reading gets done on a, a Kindle or an iPhone. And so I'm going to have to change my reading habits back to proper books, which is a, a great habit to have to change back again. But it is sort of one of those things of, oh, I quite like doing it on my on my iPad. Yeah, absolutely. And I we're very connected in this world. And unfortunately, with all these devices, we are overconnected. And I think this um, ability to switch off from the, the devices and is a really difficult one that we, we all face and just trying to find some simple ways of doing that. And if that means, you know, going back to a, a paper copy book, and that's one solution, or it means charging your phone, you know, away from your bedside overnight, so that you're not seeing notifications or perhaps even turning off notifications so that we're not on our devices all the time. I think all those other little factors that are really feeding into the, that sense of just never, ever being off and giving ourselves a chance to, to revitalise and re-energise can be really, really helpful in time in terms of trying to rebuild the energy bank. When I first heard you talk, I was really inspired that this is actually starting to change and shift particularly at a, at a hospital-based level um, because definitely when I joined the general practice training program, I had this like, ah, you know, I did my PGPP placement and I went in and we had lunch together and I was supported and had um, protected teaching time and I was treated like an equal and, you know, my opinion was respected and, it was just this amazing kind of environment that was so different than what I'd experienced in hospital and I went back and did my final term in the hospital and I really, really struggled through that final term and I, I remember really clearly like crying in front of my consultant and just about <laughs> the the culture of what was happening and there wasn't much kind of response there. And, and so it's really just so amazing to see there being a shift, particularly in a large organisation such as yours. And I'm, I'm really interested in how or your understanding of what's happening amongst other hospitals and other health districts in regard to interest in the program that you guys have developed and whether there's a bit of a flavour of it starting to expand out and starting to be adopted in other areas. Yeah, look, that's a that's a really um, great question, and and something I guess I've spent a lot of time doing over the last month is actually going out to other hospitals and I guess sharing the work that we're doing here and actually learning from them about what work they're doing. And you know, I was at the National Doctors Health Forum a couple of months ago, and again, what I sort of took away from that is that there's a whole lot of great pockets of work occurring in sort of siloed parts of the community without you know each individual party knowing what the other people were doing and so I think you know there is absolutely a shift in momentum that is almost palpable now about we are getting some traction to try and affect real change and I think my appointment as the chief medical wellness officer so to actually create positions now to drive this and, and the establishment of our WellMD centre you know, copying the Stanford model is saying that we, you know, are properly driving resources at a problem that I think had band-aid solutions and small amounts of money sort of put towards things that haven't necessarily been sustainable or resourced appropriately to go forward. 
So I really do think there's been a, a momentum shift and, you know, we're certainly piloting ways and and learning as we go along and there is still a huge way to go. I think other hospitals are doing wonderful small bits of work. I haven't seen a significant investment yet like, you know, in the positions that I've talked about for running wellbeing. Um, It's one thing to, you know, do what we've done and deliver it to 58 doctors. It's another thing to try and do it to 2,000 doctors across your organisation um, without appropriate resources to do that. And I think that's really been the struggle with administration and, and resourcing to date is that firstly, people haven't known what the right thing to do is. And so there's been a lot of piloting of small things. And secondly, there hasn't been the, the proper resources thrown at a coordinated systematic approach to this. And I think it's really wonderful to, to see that happening now. And I'm really hoping that we can show in Sydney Local Health District a model that works that other people then don't have to reinvent the wheel with. And, you know, all these programs need to be localised because every different hospital you work out will have slightly different issues. But I think if you can put these governance structures and platforms and resources in place, then you can have the conversations and share the ideas with each other, you know, across hospital systems or, you know, out into primary care about what's working and what's not and have that sort of coordinated approach going forward. Absolutely. And thank you so much for being part of this, I think, wonderful initiative and a demonstration of good leadership in practice. So I think I'm going to round us off and I'm going to pick everybody's brains for a clinical take-home gem of some type or other. Who wants to start? How about you, Beck? I'll jump in. So my clinical gem will probably spin off from what we were talking about with social networking in that the GP19 registrations opened this week. I previously have not been a huge conference fan, but GP18 was really good last year and really good for the social networking aspect. And I really would encourage, especially the people who find themselves being a little bit shy and quiet and less likely to go into the lunchroom and talk to people to come along and do spend time at the RECGP or the wellbeing bench and chatting to people because it really is a great conference and Adelaide's a great location and I'll be there. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Beck. What about you, Ash? So my clinical tip or resource of the week was a section of the Jean Hales website. If you Google Jean Hales prolapse, there is a huge resource centre that women can go to, which has a link to heaps of different resources. So now they've got links to podcasts, YouTube videos, information sheets, talking about all the different ways uh, that women can improve their pelvic floor, videos on pelvic floor, and then escalation of therapy as they need it. And it's a really cool one-stop shop that you can direct people towards in terms of prolapse symptoms. Awesome. Thanks, Ash. So, Bethan, what about you? Uh, I may take the cheeky opportunity to direct people to our MDOK Facebook page. So a lot of the things we've been talking about and some of the resources that go behind all these wellbeing sort of strategies We're trying to share through the Facebook page and really start that conversation. So if you just put MDOK into uh, Facebook, you'll see and have access to that resource and, and see some of the work that we're doing. Fantastic. A great opportunity to take use of that 
cheeky promotional. Well done. And I'll sort of finish with a promotion again for Health Pathways. And this is sort of inspired again from my transgender day because there's a couple of amazing Health Pathways. There's what the uh, Hunter New England um, Health Pathways has got a fantastic one on sort of the ways in which to best manage transgender, that's in who to refer to, what are some of the legal responsibilities and also prescribing. Sydney Health Pathways is about to put one on. Hopefully it won't be too far down the track. But even if you don't have access to that, it's a reminder to go and have a look because you may well find that a whole lot of things that you don't sort of, you're not really sure where the referral pathways are for or what the resources are in your local district, but you can actually find them if you do a little search on your local health pathways. And it's it's a really great resource and a great way of learning as well as finding better ways to get health stuff for your patients. So I think that actually brings us to an end, which is a bit sad, but what I'm going to encourage everybody to do is maybe to think about their well-being, maybe prioritise themselves in the day as well as looking after patients and the other things that you do and go and find some really good socialising things, fun activities to do, a bit of exercise thrown in and just generally try to enjoy your time and your time off. Um, Have a great rest of your week or weekend wherever you're at.